You're listening to audio from Park Church. More info and resources are online at parkchurch.org. Take care. This is Matthew 13. Uh, we are at the end of the chapter. Matthew 13, 53. And when Jesus had finished these parables... He went away from there, and coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue, so that they were astonished and said, Where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are not all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. And he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Um, Jesus, we open up our hearts uh, right now. Sometimes we are so familiar with you, so familiar with the promises that you are present with us that we forget to be stunned by that reality and to embrace and to actually tune our hearts to the reality of your presence. And so would you right now, in the complexity of the emotional space that is in this room right now, would you meet us with power? Would you open uh, the eyes of our hearts to be attentive to your care, your comfort, your love, your power, your nearness? Would you guide us? Would you convict us? Would you give us hope where we need hope? Would you bring healing and restoration into our lives in all of the ways for all of us that we need? And so we turn our eyes to you. We give attention to you. We give attention to your life. We give attention to your word. We give attention to your presence. And we pray that you would meet us right here and right now, that our love for you, our affection for you, our commitment to you, our allegiance to you and your kingdom would deepen in these moments. And would you guide us and lead us? In Christ's name we pray, amen. Uh, we are in a series through Matthew where we are looking at the life and the ministry and the works of Jesus. Uh, Matthew is a biography about Jesus, one of four that we have in the New Testament. It just walks through who he is, what he did, what his kingdom's all about. And these are biographies that were given by some of the closest followers of Jesus, some of his first generation to help people like you and me Christians throughout the ages to learn more about who he is and what it means to follow him. Um, We have been working through this series for uh, a couple of years and we are not yet halfway through, almost, almost halfway through. Uh, So we got some time to go. I'm in no hurry. Are you in a hurry? I'm in no hurry uh, to get through Matthew. And, uh, And in this particular passage, we're kind of right in the middle of a season where Jesus is beginning to experience divided responses. Uh, He came onto the scene proclaiming this news about a kingdom, the kingdom of God, a kingdom where broken things are made whole, where human beings are reconciled to their maker, where uh, divided relationships are reconciled, where broken bodies are healed, where broken systems are restored, and where Jesus continues to meet and bring restoration in and through his presence in the world. And so he's preaching this good news about a kingdom that he's building for all who would turn to him and trust in him 
and follow him. And as he was preaching that news of the kingdom, he was also showing the power of that kingdom. As people come to Jesus, they're being healed and restored and forgiven and healed of all kinds of afflictions, emotional pain, social pain, physical pain and brokenness. And people are experiencing this. And then he begins to teach a different way of living, a different way of being human. So we have the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, 7, where Jesus is teaching what it means to be human and the values of his kingdom and what it means to trust him and what it means to treasure him and what it means to forgive and to love and to serve. And he's just teaching a different way of thinking about human existence according to the values of his kingdom. And as he kind of goes on from there and he's doing these miracles, you start beginning to see these divided responses. And as the responses begin to divide, it's like his closest followers begin to be a little bit concerned. We thought momentum was going to build towards this kind of kingdom that was going to grow. More and more people were going to be excited. More and more people were going to follow Jesus. All of Israel was going to believe and the Messiah is here. And that's not what they experienced. What they experienced is people began to reject Jesus. People began to question him. And it was concerning to his followers. And so to clear things up, Jesus spoke in really cryptic stories, which is super Jesus-y. You know, um, hey, just to clear it up, I'm going to share with you kind of a riddle story, and um, that's going to confuse most of you. A few of you, you're going to be intrigued, and you're going to meditate on it for generations, and the realities of my kingdom will make their way into the hearts of those who have ears to hear. And so he shares these parables that are making sense of why some people reject him. Some people will kind of believe for a little while and fade away. uh, And how God is over all of it. And at the end, we'll clear things up and we can trust him while we seek to be faithful and to receive and to listen and to follow Jesus. And so he's cultivating resilience among his disciples as he's preparing them to face their own experience of rejection their own experience of challenges, their own experience of difficulties, teaching them in ways that will deepen their own trust in him, that he's not oblivious to the complexities and the challenges of what it means to follow Jesus in this world, to follow him in this world. And so he's just finished this series of parables, and we get here to uh, chapter 13, verse 53, and Jesus is going to begin to go back to his hometown uh, to teach and to preach. And what he's going to do is he's actually going to meet people that have a lot of expectations about who they imagined him to be, what they imagined the Messiah to be like, and those expectations are going to clash with what they experience in him, in his presence. So that's, that's where we are. Uh, what I want us to pay attention to in our own experience in life is that we all live with kind of like expectations and value systems in this world that we kind of bring to the table when we live. And so one of the things that's confronted in this passage is our understanding of status, What makes someone great? What makes somebody important? What makes somebody worthwhile? What makes somebody that's kind of like worth giving your attention to or paying attention to? What makes somebody kind of a meaningful, significant person in your book? If you were to think about it, you probably have some conscious things, but there's probably a lot of unconscious things that you bring to the table. Like when you meet somebody is, you know, one of the first questions people ask in our society is, what do you do? Why do we ask that? Because in our society, vocation is seen as a status marker. It's a quick way to measure somebody up. It's not a healthy thing to do, but it's what our society does. We take vocation and we use vocation to measure up people's status or identity. Or we take the way people talk or where they're from or their education or their background or what they wear, where they live in the city, and we kind of quickly make assumptions about people based on little things about them. Uh, There's a book called Status Anxiety by a guy named Alain de Baton who writes about what he calls just kind of living in a culture of snobbery, that we live in a culture of snobs. And what he means by snobs is a snob in his 
definition is a person who takes little things about somebody and makes kind of an assessment or a judgment about the whole of that person based on one little thing about them, right? And so our society is full, filled with these things. It happens all the time. So in a place like Denver, you know, as I look out, all these people sipping on their coffee, uh, in Denver, if you don't know this, you should, um, if you're like walking around with a Starbucks cup in the middle of the heart of Denver, like downtown, that is not seen as cool in downtown Denver. Now, some of you are like quickly like shifting your Starbucks cup behind your back. It's no big deal. You're loved here. You're loved here. Um, you're loved here. But in Denver, I learned this. I learned this. I thought, no, I've really upgraded from Folgers to Starbucks. And, um, and it's not cool in Denver. People make a quick assessment about you. You're like, you're clearly from the Midwest or the suburbs, and it's okay. Um, it's okay, but welcome. It's not cool here. There's another wave. It's called the third wave. And uh, it's, it's just a little above most of us. And so you kind of, uh, you have that. There are assessments that people make based on music. You could do a little kind of like experiment about this. Just go down the road, roll down your windows, crank up the radio and play Nickelback or something like that. And just watch the looks of people like immediately judging you. Um, immediately judging you. And you could, we do this in all sorts of ways. Um, but this kind of system is pervasive. We, we stack each other up. We kind of rank people in our minds. Most of social media uh, is built around this idea. It builds a culture of pride and shame, pride of feeling above other people, shame of feeling underneath. And we are shifting as a society into more of an honor-shame culture, which is very much the culture of the first century. It was very much an honor-shame culture, and in an honor-shame culture, people were stacked in kind of like tiers of significance. And there are things about you, about where you come from, about what you've done, about what your family's like, about what you do, about your education and your wealth, that would immediately stack people up. And people in their culture would make quick assessments about whether or not somebody is worthwhile, about whether somebody's significant or great or meaningless or worth your attention or your care or not, based on a few quick judgments based on externals about a person. And Jesus in this passage is going to come in and in his whole life, in his whole ministry, is going to undermine those cultural assumptions about what makes somebody worthy. What is the mark of true greatness? What is the mark of, of somebody who's truly significant? What is the mark of greatness in the kingdom of God? What is the mark of true glory and what's worthy of honor in the kingdom of God. And this passage brings us right into the heart of it because the arrival of Jesus and the value system of first century Israel are going to clash hard. And so I want you to see it in the passage and look at and just consider the assumptions being made uh, by the people from Jesus' hometown and why, how that affects the way they're going to assess and judge Jesus. There's a lot happening in this passage. We're not going to spend too much time uh, this morning just for the sake of time. I'm going to focus on one primary reality and draw out a few implications for us. Uh, Matthew 13, verse 53. It says, And when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there. That's from Galilee, where he's preaching the parables. And he coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue. The hometown is Nazareth, which is where Jesus had come from. Nazareth was the kind of like quintessential podunk town. Like it was known as the quintessential podunk town throughout all of Israel. The kind of saying was, can anything good come from Nazareth? When people would hear that Jesus was from Nazareth, they would immediately dismiss him because Nazareth was such a small, meaningless town that you wouldn't imagine anything significant coming from that community. And so as Jesus goes back to Nazareth, he's entering into this community. And I want you just to imagine, in our culture, 
If just kind of what is in your mind the quintessential podunk town, don't say it out loud, you'll get judged and sound really snobby. Um, but you have this idea of like, what's a small town experience? And, uh, and you imagine this kind of small town where not much is happening. And, uh, and if somebody like grows up in that town and makes it big as a celebrity or an athlete or a politician or whatever, they make it big and, and they, you go back to that town, what, what does that town feel? They feel pride. Like, you know, you go to their Applebee's, you know, and it's the pictures of like their <laughs> basketball game, you know? It's like, they, were, they played high school basketball here. I was on their team, you know? And it's, or it's like, whatever it was, like there's the stories and all the sort of like, you know, all the kind of urban legends now about the things they did and how I talked, you know? It's like, you feel like we're proud that that person came from here. They're kind of making it big. And if they come back, it's like a hero's welcome. It's like a incredible homecoming. Is that what Jesus is going to experience? Not, not even remotely. It's not even remotely what he experienced. Look at what it says. He's teaching in their synagogues so that they were astonished and said, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Like he's teaching and they're like, whoa, like something about the way he's teaching and something about the, the things that he's beginning to do and the stories they've been hearing and healings as they experience this, they're astonished. Something is intriguing. It's so captivating. It feels so real. Like there's something that's kind of drawing them out. This is, a, this is amazing. And it invites some contemplation. And the story of Jesus invites contemplation from all of us. You have to say, what am I going to do with these claims of this power and this wisdom, this teaching that this man came into the world and taught things and did things and, and it changed the world? And I have to like think about that and invite some contemplation. And so as they contemplate, the things they're hearing him say and the things they're seeing him do, it begins to ask this question, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? And then they start processing, wait a minute. Wait, isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't his mother called Mary and are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? Are not all of his sisters with us? Like, wait, we, but we know him, and we know his family, and, and we remember watching them, you know, throw rocks around in the streets. We, we remember that time he fell out of the fig tree and broke his arm, and the local physician had to come and help him. I remember, like, when he was in, like, Torah school, and he was struggling to memorize the Shema. Like, I, I remember him, and he was no big deal. He's no big deal. His family's no big deal. And when you live in Nazareth and you think somebody in Nazareth is a no big deal, it means you're like really no big deal, right? The no big deal town and a no big deal family. And they're like, wait, I can't even barely remember him. Wait, I know his brothers. I can name them by name, but wasn't he with them? Wasn't he around there? And somehow this kind of like the inability to reconcile, they feel there's wisdom and there's mighty works that would make you think as people are beginning to think this might be the Messiah. The stories are going around. This might be the Messiah. This might be the one we've been waiting for. But I can't reconcile this Messiah who's the one that we've put our hope in, the one who's going to come to restore the world and heal Israel and bring restoration to this kingdom and change things and bring, bring a whole new kingdom. And we've been waiting and waiting and waiting. And part of what he's saying and part of what he's doing makes me think he might be. But then I consider his lowly origin. I consider like the kind of the place where he's come from and I just cannot reconcile these things. They had preconceptions about 
why his status and where he had come from could not be reconciled with what they were seeing in him. And in that space, instead of letting the character of Jesus challenge their preconceptions, they allow their preconceptions to push out the possibility that Jesus is who people are claiming that he is, and they reject him. It says it right there in the passage. It says, where did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. What that word means is they refused to believe in him. And so Jesus says, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. Like, he could go out around and there could be fame spreading about him and people want to come and see him. They want to follow him and people are kind of learning. Some people are trusting him and kind of a prophet that goes away from their place. Everybody's like grateful for the prophet coming and doing ministry. But when you go back to the hometown, there's something that's uncomfortable about this. And in this particular case, what was so uncomfortable for them is they could not reconcile somebody that in biblical kind of like prophetic wisdom was going to have such incredible significance, such an incredible role, like the greatest human being ever. And they could not reconcile how that could kind of coexist with his humble, lowly origins. And so they reject him. And then the passage says that Jesus did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. I want to take a, a, just a quick moment to talk about that last verse, and then I'm going to back, back up to what I think is the primary theme. But that last verse kind of raises questions for people. It says, Jesus did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. And it brings us into just like, if you've been a follower of Jesus for a while, or if you're not, if you've just like, you've prayed out to God before, and you've like, God, do this thing. I'm, I'm desperate for healing. I'm desperate for this relationship. I'm desperate for this job. I'm desperate for provision. I'm desperate for whatever. And you've prayed, and you've prayed. And if you've lived, there are times when you've prayed, and, and you've felt nothing happens. Nothing happens. And it just raises the kind of like perennial question for all human beings of like, why can I like cry out to God and I pray for things and sometimes it seems like he does answer and sometimes it seems like he doesn't. Like, how does that work? And what we as humans want to do is create some formula to make sense of it all. We want to create a formula like uh, if you kind of believed enough, God would do it. And so you're constantly, if he doesn't do it, you're like, did I not believe enough? Did I believe enough? And you're asking this question and, uh, and you can feel a lot of shame. It can actually really discourage kind of like bold prayers and asking God to do things in your life and in your community when you feel like, man, maybe I just don't have enough faith. So I want to just like bring a little clarity to that. What Jesus is speaking to specifically right here is that this is a community that had rejected him. They refused to believe him. It wasn't like the disciples who are often mentioned, to, mentioned as those with little faith. This is those who refused to believe. And Jesus is never operating from insecurity. He's never like, wait, wait, no, hold on, let me show you another trick. You know, like he's not like using miracles to make people like him. That's not his goal. He's displaying the power of God as an expression of love for people. And when people come to him and trust in him, he's bringing healing and restoration as signs that the kingdom of God has come upon us, that the kingdom of God where broken things are restored has come. And for those that aren't turning to him, he's kind of like over and over, he's like, I'm not even gonna like expend energy trying to prove anything. And he will kind of like dust the dust off his sandals and move on. He knows that rejection is a part of the story. And it's gonna increasingly become a part of the story all the way to the point of the crucifixion. He's not put off by the rejection uh, but he's not kind of spending his time like trying to prove to people who are rejecting him. Uh, but it does kind of invite for us the question about, well, what does it mean to pray? 
And God is not kind of, again, operating under some formula. He's not a God who enters into a contract with us. Like, if you believe enough, I'll do these things for you. If you don't believe enough, I won't. Prayer is relational. It's communion with the God of the universe. Like, sitting down with a good, heavenly Father who wants to hear you ask him for things. He wants to. And there are times what he responds with is like, yes, I love you and I'm for you. There are times where he responds with, I love you and I'm for you, but I have wisdom beyond you right now. I see a bigger picture. And so I'm going to say no, but not because I'm against you or not because you didn't believe enough. The object of our belief, not the measure of our belief, is what we put our hope in. And we put our hope in Jesus who has power. And so I just think about this even as a father. Like there are times I give my kids things freely and just give them things because I thought about it and I wanted to give it to them because I love them. There are times I kind of give my kids things because they ask for it. Dad, can we have a popsicle? Yeah, sure, have a popsicle. You know, if they wouldn't have asked for a popsicle, what if I given them the popsicle? No, I like those popsicles. You know, like, uh, you know, save them for me. No, I mean, like, there are times where it's just like, oh, you asked, of course. There are times where God does not give us stuff because we didn't ask him. Because we didn't ask him. That if we ask him, He may and he may not. He has wisdom. We have to trust him. But just think of it as a relationship with a wise, good father who loves you. And when he says no, he says no for a reason. So you surrender to his wisdom. But that doesn't mean don't ask. Ask. This is an invitation not to kind of be afraid of praying or afraid of kind of like, well, maybe he's not doing it because we don't believe. Just encourage you to invite God to kind of relate with him as you ask him to work in and among us. But I think the primary theme of the passage here is their rejection of Jesus. And Jesus is preparing kind of his followers, even through this story, for the reality of rejection. And in this passage, the, the kind of the issue around the rejection of Jesus is that his lowliness, his kind of like baseness, his plainness, his just ordinariness, his humanity was something that was just like an irreconcilable reality for them and what they expected the Messiah to be. And that is something that has tripped up people for a long time. A lot of people have had a really hard time understanding the humanity of Jesus. If he really is the Son of God, how could he also be human? And so we have theology for this. We talk about the Trinity, Trinitarian theology, which we are all about as a church. We believe that God is the the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, that the Father is God, the Son is God, the Spirit is God, but the Father's not the Son, the Son's not the Spirit, the Spirit's not the Father. Like, this is like, like, we can talk about it, we can say it, we can, like, you know, write whole books about it and its implications, but it's, like, the first followers are trying to make sense of this. They're trying to make sense. They didn't like have a kind of formed Trinitarian theology. They're trying to make sense. And so how is this power at work in such a normal human being was a hard thing to reconcile. As generations would go by, they'd have whole councils about this and try to sort through the stories about Jesus from his followers and what kind of centuries and centuries and now millennia of church history has said Jesus Christ is 100% God and 100% human. And the 100% human means he was fully human. He lived, he cried, he had weakness. He, he, he walked through life with limitations. He had to depend on the spirit. He had to seek God for wisdom. He had to learn things. He, like, again, would, like, you think about the old hymn, the Christmas hymn, uh, you know, it talks about the little Lord Jesus, no crying he makes. You know, it's like a way in a manger. And you imagine this baby that's just, like, serenely, just, like, smiling. It's like, that's not true. That... <laughs> That didn't happen. That didn't happen. Uh, why? Because babies, human babies, cry. Uh, I have one. I know. Uh, they, uh, 
they very much cry and they can pretend publicly that they're sweet and happy, but then secretly at nighttime, <laughs> they're like, now's the time. Uh, Jesus cried. I mean, it's just like he's a, he's a human. And he entered into all the weakness and all the vulnerability and all the pain of the human experience to sympathize with us and to walk as a human, learning to depend on the Father, to walk in the Spirit. And it was out of that space, Joel talked about this a few weeks ago, that he did incredible things. But it's hard. It's hard to understand the humanity and the nearness of Jesus. It's hard for non-Christians. I I remember in 2006, I read a Time Magazine article where Time Magazine had convened a debate between Richard Dawkins, who's a prominent atheist, and a guy named Francis Collins, uh, who's a Christian scientist, not Christian scientist, who's a Christian, who's a scientist vocationally uh, in in genetics. And, And genetics. And so they have this debate. And in this, I just remember being struck by this uh, line from uh, Christopher Hitchens. I'm going to read it because um, I, I thought it was just intriguing to me. Here's what, uh, here's what Christopher, uh, sorry, here's what Richard Dawkins says. Richard Dawkins, who wrote The God Delusion. Uh, he's talking about like people's faith in the God of Christianity. He says, yes, maybe, maybe there's an intelligent designer. That might be plausible. But it could be any of a billion gods. It could be God of the Martians or God of the inhabitants of Alpha Centauri. The chance of it being a particular God, like Yahweh, the God of Jesus, is vanishingly small. At the end, he said this, if there is a God, which I thought was a profound kind of like openness, if there is a God, it's going to be a whole lot bigger and a whole lot more incomprehensible than anything than any theologian or any religion has ever proposed. He's like, for there to be a God that created the heavens and the earth and what we now know of them has to be so much bigger than anything the human mind could possibly conceive of. That to equate that being with this guy Jesus from this nation called Israel, from this little town called Nazareth, no way. There's no way. And so he uses his preconception of what the glory of a God would be like to actually dismiss the potential that Jesus might be that God. And we could do that. We could let our preconceptions about what we think greatness is push away the reality of Jesus or kind of change the way we think about him. What the Bible again and again and again doesn't shy away from the humility and the lowliness of Jesus. In fact, we saw this in Matthew 11, that one of the core things that Jesus used to describe himself during the great invitation that we sang about earlier is that he is gentle and lowly in heart. And the lowly word just means just not kind of like humble as a virtue. It means like just didn't esteem himself highly. Like if you were to walk in this room and Jesus were here, he wouldn't be on stage. He'd be sitting in a corner praying with somebody that's hurting. He'd be sitting down to somebody who nobody was talking to and just talking to them and loving them. You wouldn't like look around and be able to spot him by his hip clothes or, you know, he wouldn't be walking around with some sort of like arrogance and he'd just be like loving people, especially gravitating towards people that were in brokenness and pain. It's just who he was and it's kind of who he is still. Somebody who's so accessible to us in our own brokenness and our own pain. Somebody who's constantly inclining his heart towards us and our brokenness and our weakness and our humanity and our vulnerability. He continued to make himself nothing. And the Bible promotes this again and again. There's a passage in Matthew and in Mark where Jesus is 
kind of, the, the kind of following's growing and you have his disciples that are still thinking of the world through this kind of like climb the ladder system, like kind of the way up is up. And so they're kind of thinking, if Jesus is the Messiah, the crowds are gonna grow, momentum's gonna start building, and we wanna be on your coattails when you take your throne and glory and kind of reestablish the stuff. We wanna be in the frame when the kind of camera zooms in to get this picture of this new king. We're there with you, like, we're with this guy, we were there at the beginning. And so James and John are like, hey, would you let us sit at your right hand and on your left hand in your glory? And Jesus says, can you drink the cup that I'm going to drink? In other words, are you willing to suffer the way I'm going to suffer? That for Jesus, glory is not self-exaltation. It is self-sacrifice. For Jesus, the way up is humble service. And he says, if you're willing to kind of enter into a different way of thinking about greatness, then you can join me in this pursuit of greatness. But the way to pursue greatness is humility, sacrifice, and laying your life down as a servant of everyone. And then he says to them, in the nations, among the nations, he says, the kind of rulers think about power and they think about greatness as those who are at the top of the ladder, those who have all the authority and kind of have all the influence and all the prestige and all the honor, but not so in my kingdom. My kingdom's upside down. If you want to be great in my kingdom, you make yourself nothing. If you want to be first in my kingdom, you get at the end of the line. If you want to be one who's seen as meaningful and valuable in my kingdom, then you humble yourself and approach all other people as a servant for whom you will lay down your life. That's greatness. He said, for even the Son of Man, speaking of himself, didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. It's profound. And the New Testament just unpacks this. Even the Old Testament, you have places like Isaiah 53, that he was this man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. He had no form, no majesty that we should esteem. We didn't esteem him. We didn't think highly of him. He made himself nothing again and again. It's the kind of the character of who he is. And so you get to a place like Philippians chapter 2. And what Jesus is saying in Philippians chapter 2, which I think is so profound, or what Paul is saying of Jesus in Philippians chapter 2, is that the glory of Jesus isn't kind of something he set aside to become a servant. The glory of Jesus is his servant-heartedness. Like true glory, true greatness is a self-emptying, sacrificial love. And so Paul is talking to this church that was going through a lot of different things, and in that space he invites the followers of Jesus to kind of take upon themselves the mind of Jesus. Here's what he says. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves. For my followers, Jesus is saying, and for Paul saying, for the followers of Jesus, let's take the different kind of mindset. Let's adopt a totally different kind of mindset than the mindset that is so pervasive in the world. And here's our mindset. Here's our mindset. It's ours in Christ Jesus. As we look to him, as we're filled with the Spirit, it becomes ours. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count his equality with God a thing to be grasped. Another translation is, he didn't see his identity as the Son of God. And the glory that comes with that is a reason to kind of climb up. He saw his identity as the Son of God, his glory as the Son of God, as a reason to empty himself. He says he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. What Paul is saying is for Jesus, his godness, his power, his authority, his glory as the Son of God was a reason to make himself 
a human, to come as a human, not just as a kind of a, a lord of the humans and a king of the humans, but a servant of the humans, and to serve to the point of death, and to not just die, but to die the most shameful death available in their society, death on a cross. Jesus went down, 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 and that's glory. It says, therefore, God highly exalted him. The Father says over the Son, glory. Glory, you want to see humanity in full glory? Look at Jesus nailed to a cross, and you see glory. And so God highly exalts him. He gives him a name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the glory of Jesus. We can let kind of like our preconceptions about what makes somebody meaningful and what makes somebody great kind of continue to kind of like flood and kind of like twist our life, or we can let the presence of Jesus, his lowliness, the fact that he was a kind of, uh, a kind of humble guy from a humble town that didn't ever try to make himself seem great to anybody, and we can let that reality, that that was the Son of God, the creator of the heavens and the earth, change the way we think about what it means to be human, change about the way we think what it means to live in this world and to relate to other people. So here's just three simple, I think, implications that I've been wrestling with this week and just invite you to wrestle with with me as we think about the nature of glory. Think of Jesus the Messiah in this humble origin. Number one, don't spend your energy trying to climb the social status ladder. Don't waste your energy on that stuff. It's garbage. We, we are constantly trying to compare ourselves to other people. You know, we kind of talk about social media. There's uh, this idea kind of historically, we're always kind of creating these systems of comparison, trying to measure ourselves up and against other people. Uh, there was a day when like uh, high school reunions were a thing and there's no social media, there's no Facebook, there's no Instagram. And so like you'd be disconnected from all your high school friends and every five years or whatever, you'd go back to high school and you'd have a reunion and you wouldn't know what everybody else has been doing. And so you'd come back, maybe you're married, maybe you're not married, maybe you've got a job, not job. And you'd feel this social anxiety about are you going to measure up, you know, because you're going to compare yourself to a referent group and you're going to feel, am I above? Am I kind of like stacking up well or not so well? Am I above average or below, ahead of the curve or behind? And it's this kind of like anxious moment. Now you kind of take social media and it just applies it constantly. You can hop on Facebook and look at your college buddies and how are they doing and where are they living and what's their job and what's their family like? And then you feel yourself and you feel better than or worse than. And this system tears people up. It tears people up. You walk into your small group and somebody else has got this new house and you don't have a house yet or somebody else has got this, like, like you've been single together and now they're married and you're not married or, or these people have that. And you're like constantly like kind of stacking up like these thoughts of like what makes you significant or valuable based on all these external markers that we made up. We just made it all up. And Jesus just kicks that stuff in the teeth and says, I love you. The real you right here, right now, I love you. And in fact, his heart gravitates towards us in our lowliness. His heart gravitates to those who are poor of spirit, poor in society, broken, humbled, people who feel stained by sin and mistakes and regret, people that are beating their chest and saying, God, I have nothing to like boast about. All I can say is have mercy on me, a sinner. Jesus is like, I love that guy. Some of the guys are like, I fast and I pray and I do all this stuff. You can read about this in Luke 18. It's like, I'm, I've like done all the religious stuff. And this other guy's like, I have nothing but a bunch of brokenness. I need mercy. And you know what Jesus says? God resists the proud man and gives grace to the humble man. His heart just like bends to this 
brokenness and the humility and the pain in our own weaknesses. It bends towards that space. So don't spend your energy trying to climb the social status ladder. You just don't need to. It's a waste of energy. Our system, our world made that up, and it's not the kingdom of God. You are loved. You are loved exactly as you are. Number two, don't be afraid of the things that knock you down the ladder a couple rungs. Failure, honesty about mistakes, confessing the reality of our own sin and brokenness, the things that we don't measure up, the things we haven't achieved, when you don't have that kind of like highlights you can give about yourself, and it's just like, man, honestly, it's been a really hard season. I have like nothing like to say that's like, oh, this is all great, or I accomplished this, or I did this, or I acquired this, or whatever it would be. Embrace the realities When we walk through hard things that humble us, sometimes humiliation makes you feel really humbled. And feeling really humbled again and again and again, if you learn to actually experience God's love in that space, it actually could cultivate humility. Really beautiful virtue. But oftentimes humility comes kind of as you meet with God in the space of humiliation, failure, weakness, limitations. When you begin to think less and less of yourself, when you stop thinking about yourself so much and start thinking about the grace of God and the love of God for you and you don't feel the need to kind of prove anything, that's when God really creates the kind of like humility in which he loves to pour out his grace and his power. And that's the third thing that I want to say is that don't underestimate what God can do through ordinary, weak, and broken people. Don't underestimate what he can do through ordinary, weak, and broken people, especially when people learn to live their lives in humble sacrifice. When you think about the Apostle Paul in the second letter to the Corinthians, it's one of my favorite books of the Bible because it's Paul's paradigm of ministry, pastoral ministry for him because there are all these what they called super apostles, all these kind of like apostles that were going around and making a bunch of money, preaching at churches and, uh, and all the kind of Christians were like, those people look legit. They seem, they sound good, they look good. They, you know, they're, we have to pay them because they're like professional. And, uh, and then Paul comes and they're like, you know, you look like you've been hurting. He's like, I have been hurting. I just got stoned, you know, uh, like, and whipped and shipwrecked. I carry anxiety with me for all these churches. I've been rejected by the nations and Rome and Roman government. I've been rejected by my, our own people. It's complexity and pain. He was beat down. And he said, but you know what? I'm going to brag about that stuff. Anything that helps you see how weak I am, anything that helps you see how powerless I am, anything that helps you see that I have no power to do anything, when you consider that and you start looking at God's power at work through the weakness of my life, Paul says, he's like, who does that smell like? And this is all a second. It smells like Jesus is what it smells like. And that's the nature of what God loves to use. And 2 Corinthians, loves, he loves to use the foolish things of this world to confound the wise. He loves to meet us in our weakness, in our brokenness, to display the sufficiency of his grace and the incredible power that he has. He loves, at the end of the day, to kind of work in and through people that would not say, look at all I did, but to work in and through people that say, look at the grace of God and the power of God. This is what he does, which is awesome for us. It means you don't have to play a game. You don't have to climb the social ladder. You can embrace your own weakness, experience God's love, and watch God work in and through a community like that to do beautiful things. I think we have opportunity right now as a, as a, as a church to really lean into God's grace and love and power at work in our weakness in, in us as a whole, as a culture, as a church. If you like chat with our leaders, you'll feel a weariness among our leaders right now. It's because we're weary. We're not hopeless but we're weary, it's okay. If I were to sit with each of you 
I can hear your stories about your life, your job, your family, the stuff you're walking through. We don't have to pretend. We can be honest about our weakness. Let God's grace meet us there, experience his love there, and there's a freedom, but also there's a power. There's a power, and I think for 2,000 years, God has been using weak people, powerless people, to do incredible things. And even in this story, that kind of people that are named as those who rejected Jesus, even his own family, after the resurrection, like these people from Nazareth, like Mary, who becomes a matriarch for the early church. James, who becomes a leader of the church in Jerusalem. Judas, another name for Judas in Greek is Jude, and he writes another letter that's in your New Testament. James writes the letter we call James. Like these people that had rejected him as they begin to understand more and more about his life, it transformed them, and God used them to transform the world. And we are in that story and going to be a part of it. And so I want to invite you to just take a minute and pray with me as we grow as a people that embrace our weakness actually meet with God and find a different kind of glory, a different kind of love where God meets us in the brokenness of our life. Would you pray with me? Jesus, we, uh, we need you right now to remind us of your love for us in our weakness, your grace that's sufficient for us, your power that is at work within us in the midst of our weakness, our brokenness, our sin, our failures. Would you just pour out grace on us for every individual in the room as they think about their own life, their own story, their own regrets, the ways where they don't feel like they've measured up or the ways they're still striving, striving, trying to prove something to their parents or their coworkers or their buddies, living in a system that crushes people. Would you liberate us from that system? Would you liberate us to embrace our humanity and to experience your love as we learn where true greatness is found, would you grow in us a heart of humility? Would you grow in us a heart of sacrificial love that we would empty ourselves for the good of others, that we would consider the interests of others as more significant than our own, and that we would grow as a people who experience your grace and power in our weakness. We pray in Christ's name, amen. Thanks for listening. Heart Church exists to make disciples of Jesus for the glory of God and for the joy of all people. If you enjoyed this, make sure you share it with someone. We'd also love to hear from you on social media at Heart Church Denver. Lastly, more resources and info are available online at heartchurch.org. Peace and love.